Hello, and welcome to episode 25 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Christine Van Dyne, the CCF's litigation director. And I'm Joanna Barron, the executive director of the CCF. And happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> happy Valentine's Day, guys. <laughs> uh, I, ch- I choo choo choose you. Yeah. So <laughs> let's trash the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> so in today's episode, we're going to be talking about what the heck is going on at the Supreme Court, where nine judges managed to put out only 27 written decisions last year. I'll walk you through a surprising and a bit spicy federal court decision that declared cabinet and the prime minister need to fill more judicial vacancies. And we'll share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that didn't quite land. But first, I'm going to tell you about a decision we got from the Supreme Court of Canada on Friday that could have big implications for future showdowns between Ottawa and the provinces. And, you know, speaking about what's up with the Supreme Court, it took 14 months between arguing this this uh, intervention and actually getting the decision, which is uh, quite unusual. And I would say that it was a win for us, but only in the sense that it wasn't a loss. And (laughs) I have to explain what I mean. But basically, we'd intervened to try and uh, ensure that the court preserved an important principle, which is that provinces can't be compelled to administer or enforce federal laws and programs. And in this particular case, the court found that a province did have to follow the federal law when it's administering its own program. But that was sort of on the facts of this particular case. And so the principle that we're trying to preserve does remain intact, thankfully. Um, So this case was Quebec AG versus the AG of Canada, and it was a reference case put forward by Quebec. And what happened was Quebec had asked the court to determine whether a federal act called the Act Respecting First Nations, Inuit and Métis Children, Youth and Families was valid in light of the constitutional division of powers, which divides powers between two equal and I stress equal levels of government, the provinces and Ottawa. And the federal act purported to do a few things. First, it affirmed the inherent right of self-government for Indigenous people in regards to child and family services. Second, it set national standards for child welfare. And this was the part we were a bit more concerned about, even though we had no issue with these particular national standards. So Quebec had argued that although the federal government has exclusive jurisdiction over, quote, Indians and lands reserved for the Indians, in section 9124 of the Constitution Act, provinces deliver child and family services because they have exclusive jurisdiction over civil rights in the province and generally all matters of a merely local or private nature. And so their position was Ottawa can't validly create these national standards. They can't co-op provincial public services into delivering services the way Ottawa wants them to be delivered. And the court disagreed with Quebec, and they found that because this law was in pith and substance aimed at a matter within their jurisdiction, which, by the way, we we had agreed with in this case, it was a valid law. But when it comes to the national standards, the courts found that they only had incidental or more minor effects on the provinces, the province's powers, including the work of their public servants. And so they applied to Quebec's child welfare services. But, and this is this is a really important point to sort of tease out, the court also said that the national standards apply to all service providers, whether they're provincial public servants or not. And so while the court could have been a bit clearer, what, the, what they seem to be saying is that this is kind of like a, a federal law, like the criminal code that applies to everyone. So, you know, public service providers, but also private service providers, and it's not really aimed at directing provinces in how they use their staff or their tax dollars or trying to force them sort of backhandedly to implement federal programs. That would still be unconstitutional, as our pro bono counsel, Jesse Hardery, so eloquently argued for us back in December 2022. And the decision also suggests reading between the lines that, you know, Quebec could opt out of providing these services if they don't want to adhere to the national standards, at least insofar as Indigenous people are concerned. And so provincial autonomy is preserved, although 
Joanna, you and I were talking about this for all practical purposes. In this case, they won't. Quebec will continue to deliver the services and they'll just have to meet these national standards. Um, now, Joanna, you also, you, you were writing about this this week in the hub. I saw your piece up there this morning and, um, you know, we were never particularly concerned with these national standards at issue, like who could argue that Indigenous children who need foster care shouldn't be raised in their communities if that's at all possible. But we what we care more about is the possibility of the federal government imposing other national standards, for example, their clean electricity regulations, which we think go way beyond their jurisdiction. So for those who haven't been following this fight, uh, the clean electricity regulations are federal standards aimed at regulating CO2 emissions and electricity generation. And we know from the carbon pricing reference in 2020 that CO2 emissions can be regulated by Ottawa to some degree under their peace order and good government power. But these particular regulations will have a huge impact on Saskatchewan and Alberta in particular because they generate a lot of their electricity from natural gas, unlike other provinces that are blessed with hydro or have nuclear power plants to generate electricity. And, you know, provinces have exclusive jurisdiction under 92AC of the Constitution Act uh, over the development, conservation and management of sites and facilities in the province for generation and production of electrical energy. And so we can expect Ottawa and the provinces to slug this one out if Ottawa does go ahead with these um, sort of extreme measures to combat CO2. So after Friday's decision, you know, Alberta and Saskatchewan will still have the option of saying that their public services don't have to administer or enforce uh, these laws using their own public services. And so in that sense, it's a win. And the decision might also be relevant to some of the federal gun control regulations that have been very unpopular in rural Canada, including, you know, the, this proposed buyback program that was supposed to be in place in October, but is sort of indefinitely been pushed off into the future, like so many things. Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba have already signaled that they won't use provincial resources to participate in that. And Alberta and Saskatchewan have actually already passed laws that will make it as difficult as possible for the federal government using the jurisdiction that they do have over firearms to actually make their buyback program happen. So that might be another area where we see some litigation um, on this question of uh, administering federal programs. So Joanna, um, you noticed that what not only was this decision 14 months in the making, which is the longest decision under reserve that we've seen for a long time, but it was also signed by the court. As someone who, who clerked in a court who's been inside, tell us what you think that means that it took so long and that it was signed by the court. Yeah, I think it's the signal of a lot of internal jockeying and you can see it in the decision, which you and I, you know, we intervene in this case. We know a reasonable amount about this case. But yesterday morning we had a conversation where where there are like huge parts that are still kind of confusing about what the broader implications are. Um, and you can see, you know, not just on the issue that we were interested in, which is, you know, whether the sort of underlying mechanism of how the federal government acted in this case, like the court didn't comment on it outside of anything else than this very sui generis context of indigenous child protection laws. Um, but of course, there there is a question of how you kind of, and it, it, it is unique because you're sort of braiding three different systems together, right? You have indigenous right to self-determination and autonomy as, as uh, you know, guaranteed in UNDRIP, which uh, we implemented and provincial law and federal law, all of which are operating as some type of sovereign co-equal governments. Um, but they didn't comment on what the implications would be outside of that context. And that might be for the best. I think judicial minimalism uh, has has its uh, has its its upsides. And so then there's other issues which we we did not intervene on, which is, you know, the scope of the right to Indigenous self-determination under Section 35 of the Constitution Act. The court also didn't make any clear pronouncements on that. They said this is a valid exercise of uh, federal parliament. They didn't really go further. Um, and so what I suspect is that 
in order to get uh, a judgment delivered by the court, which is generally seen to be, you know, the court speaking as an authoritative singular voice, which also has its benefits. Uh, there were some years, I think when I was in law school, where there was just like a string of like badly split decisions and close decisions. And it, that's a problem for knowing what the actual law is. Um, but it came at the cost of giving clear answers to some of the real controversies. So I guess in that sense, it's like a very Canadian decision, um, but we'll call it a win for now. I am really interested to see what ends up happening with this Sovereignty Act stuff. So of course, the Sovereignty Act is Danielle Smith's, I guess you would say, signature piece of legislation since forming government. And the first practical instance in which she said she'll use it is in the context of these clean electricity regulations, uh, which are still in draft form. Um, but uh, you can see how uh, principles from this case will come up, how the government will try and claim that the greenhouse gas emissions decision gives them all the authority they need. Um, and But as I think you point out, there's a real argument to be made that Alberta and Saskatchewan are disproportionately affected by this. Um, and within the federal, federal, you know, federal federal structure, given that it's explicitly set out in 92C that control over electricity within, is within provincial jurisdiction, um, they'll have a strong argument. So that will be in the years to come. You can check out my piece in The Hub, which will link. Uh, and unsurprisingly, I've gotten a lot of media interest this morning, all from Alberta, like radio <laughs> stations and media. So it shows you how this, how this decision is resonating across the country. Uh, Christine, any reaction or do we want to move on to another aspect? Of yeah, I'll, I'll just really quickly give my take, which is, um, you know, one of our concerns with this case was related to the, you know, maybe not these particular national standards, but more the concept of national minimum standards. And, you know, we saw the the outcome in the greenhouse gas emission cases. And in this case, it's, child and indigenous family services minimum standards you know what will it be tomorrow it's apparently electricity clean electricity um or uh could it be healthcare national minimum standards and and to what extent are we going to allow the federal government to intrude into areas of provincial jurisdiction in this case we said that family services is provincial jurisdiction the supreme court you know said that the the federal federal government can regulate here but there's good reason to be concerned about the federal government essentially hijacking provincial bureaucracies to implement their preferred policy outcomes when those um, are policies within the scope of the provinces. Now, in this case, obviously, there's this narrow um, application that this applies to uh, Indigenous family services. Uh, our concern at the you know the bottom line was that it would expand beyond that so i think the fact that the court has not said that a province can be compelled to administer federal laws or programs that the bottom line that still is a win and there's a, a term that i want to pick up on and what you said uh joanna to sort of segue into my headline which is judicial minimalism and I think we've been seeing mm -hmm. some real serious judicial minimalism. As minimal as it gets. Supreme, yeah, from the Supreme Court lately. So uh, my headlines is about something we've been discussing internally for quite some time now at the CCF. And, you know, we, we haven't just been discussing it internally. Uh, we've discussed it with a number of Canadian lawyers. And it's the issue of the declining number of cases being heard and decided by the Supreme Court. So, Joanna, on Friday, you were on my TV show, Canadian Justice, and we were talking during one of the commercial breaks. Uh, sorry, folks, that is where all of the, <laughs> the best conversations take place. Um, but we were chatting about our Emergencies Act case and the possibility of it going to the Supreme Court and how this court, the Supreme Court, has been taking so few cases that even with the importance of the Emergencies Act case, there is no guarantee that even this case, uh, which is the first time an extraordinary law has ever been interpreted, there's no guarantee that even that would get leave to appeal. And it's been, you know, a year plus that I have had this subjective perception 
that the Supreme Court is taking fewer cases. But now there is an article in a publication called Law 360 that actually has some data to back up that perception that I've had. And the article includes some pretty scathing anonymous quotes from lawyers who appear before the Supreme Court. So let's talk briefly about the, the data. So the article found that in 2003, 2023, last year, the Supreme Court rendered just 27 written judgments compared to 36 the year before. And that is down from an average of 51 written judgments between 2012 and 2021. And in the time period before that, 20, 2002 to 2011, the court had an average of 66 written judgments. So 66 compared to 27. It is not just my subjective perception. They're, they're clearly taking fewer cases. If you want to include, those are only written decisions as well. If you want to include non-written decisions, so oral rulings for the, the bench, from the bench, the numbers are even worse. So in 2023, there were 34 decisions total that include written and oral decisions compared to 53 in 2022 and 59 in 2021. And in 1997, there were 107 decisions uh, of written and oral decision. So compare that 107 to 36. That is pretty bleak. And if you look at sitting days, that's also really declined. The court sat for a record low in number of days for hearings, uh, a low since 2007, uh, if you exclude the pandemic year where uh, things were all weird. Um, the court just sat for 46 days. So if you compare this to other Supreme Courts around the world, you know, the, the U.S. gave 58 written rulings. The U.K. gave 54 written rulings, and you compare that to our 27 written rulings last year, and that is pretty bad. So this has been the lowest output since 1947. Our friend, uh, a friend of the CCF, uh, University of Alberta law professor Gerard Kennedy, is quoted in this Law 360 article saying that if you want to find a year that the Supreme Court gave fewer decisions you need to go all the way back to 1884. So judicial minimalism indeed. And as I said, there have been grumblings about this for a while. Uh, Joanna, you put out a pretty scathing op-ed in The Hub when the Supreme Court denied leave to appeal in a case that we had been involved with at the CCF. This was the Canby case out of British Columbia, which challenged the constitutionality of the government monopoly on healthcare. You know, it's a really important case. Patients had been put on these government wait lists for medical treatment, then left to suffer and die and banned from seeking private health care outside the government system when the government system failed. So we had argued that this is a violation of Section 7 uh, rights to be free. Uh, it, we had argued that this was a violation of the Charter Guarantee in Section 7 to uh, life liberty and security of person. The Court of Appeal actually said it violates the rights to life and security of person, uh, but they said it was uh, consistent with the principles of fundamental justice or justified under Section 1. And it's sort of, you know, uh, to, to paraphrase, you know, the price to pay for socialized medicine is that you might die. Uh, and this is absolutely inconsistent with Supreme Court case law, um, a really important case from the Supreme Court in 2005 called Shaoli. So this created an inconsistency in the law in a pretty significant area. Um, it's very unusual to have any Section 1 justification of a Section 7 life violation. So we sought leave to the Supreme Court to reconcile that inconsistency. And we were floored that the Supreme Court denied leave. And, you know, we're we're not the only ones who were shocked. You know, the, the editorial boards of the Globe and Mail, National Post, and Toronto Star all put out editorials saying that leave ought to have been granted. And now we sort of see that it's this part of this broader trend of declining uh, leaves being granted by the Supreme Court to to do their core function, which is clarifying the law in Canada. Um, we don't have an explanation as to why that case was not given leave or why any cases are denied leave. The, the 
court is not required to give reasons why they deny leave or to explain why they are taking fewer case cases. Um, there is some speculation in this article in Law 360, which I recommend everybody read. Um, some of the speculation is that, you know, Justice Brown left the court in June of 2023. Uh, so it took longer for the court to release the cases that he had been involved in. But that still doesn't explain why they took fewer leaves or why they continue to take fewer leaves. And the article, as I mentioned at the beginning, it has some pretty scathing quotes. It quotes some lawyers who appear before the Supreme Court. And because of that, they want to remain anonymous, but they they want to make their voice heard about what their view is. One of them said, and I'm quoting this lawyer, I think the court has lost its way in understanding what its core function is and that its core function is to decide cases and clarify the law of Canada. You've seen an expansion of what I would call extracurricular activities, travel, speeches, and other activities. All of those are nice, but those are not the core functions of the court, and the court should be taking on more cases and peeling back its extracurricular activities. Now, those are the words of that lawyer, not mine, but it's pretty scathing. So I'm sort of curious now that there's been more attention being drawn to this issue, if things are are going to change. I mean, we are at a historic low, so maybe that means things will start trending up. But it, honestly, it was kind of validating to see this article because it's finally like people are paying attention and saying what we have been saying for quite some time internally. Uh, it's It's been frustrating because we try to do between three and five Supreme Court interventions per year. And that's a pretty difficult thing to do if the court isn't taking cases. Like, there's nothing for us to intervene in. So my hope is that things do start to change. They do start taking more leaves uh, and that they take cases that do need clarification from the apex court and, and hearing those cases. And there will be opportunities for us to get involved where there is a intersection of some of our expertise. So, uh, Joanna, any reaction to, to this form of judicial minimalism? Yeah, well, on the whole, I agree with everything you said, but just to play devil's advocate for a moment, there could be upside to the Supreme Court keeping its paws <laughs> off. not supposed so, to say that. Yeah. Uh, so one of our like stats that I remember was like a recruiting point because I clerked at the Ontario Court of Appeal was that I think it's like 98% of cases that the court of OCA hears, which is like a workhorse court. They hear a lot of cases yeah. um, that they're basically like, we are the Supreme Court for the overwhelming majority of cases, which is kind of a weird flex. Um, but that seems to be increasingly the case. And the way I saw it kind of like working on the inside of that machinery is there was a lot of value to it because our judges were, most of them were either uh, former partners at big commercial law firms or former crowns or criminal defense lawyers and kind of like the bulk of like, it was like a half civil, half criminal docket. So there was a lot of value, like often when I would compare like a Justice Doherty, Doherty was like the head murder crown for like 30 years, or Justice Watt, who I clerked for, and I would read through how they dealt with like a complex issue in criminal law. It just seemed a lot more uh, textured, tethered to reality, understanding like how the system actually works. And then it would get up to Ottawa and they would, you would get like Justice Abella writing a, like an essay about social justice and completely misunderstanding um, that, you know, the system needs guidance, that this is going to affect the street. Um, so in that sense, there there is a silver lining. Having said that, in a case like, and I have to bring this up again, and then I'll, I'll, I'll uh, toss it back to you, Josh. In a case like Canby, there is just such clear confusion and such split precedent and a question about like whether the rights of somebody who lives in Gatineau are uh, to life, liberty and security of the person are material, materially different than someone who lives in Orleans, um, you know, down down the road. Um, and we know because the SEC denied leaving Canby, which, you know, is probably of a piece with this broader trend um, that in those cases where like true, you know, there, there's a question of law that needs to be clarified across the country, um, they're shirking that duty. So those are my thoughts and we'll keep our eye on this. Josh? 
Yeah, I don't have a huge amount to add, but um, I really am happy to see somebody use the word extracurriculars. And so uh, I just want to read a few tweets. So this is a tweet from the Supreme Court on February 8th, 2024. It says, last week, Chief Justice Wagner was in Albania to chair the board meeting between the Association des Cours Constitutionnelles Francophones, which seeks to strengthen the rule of law through judicial cooperation and conversations between Francophone courts. Then you go to January 26th, Supreme Court. Last week, the Chief Justice visited The Hague, where he spoke to the sixth judicial seminar of the International Criminal Court. December 15th, this week, senior representatives of the court met with a delegation from Moldova. It goes on and on. Back in November, it says, Supreme Court of Canada. Italy's Minister of Justice, the Honorable Carlo Nordio, was at the Supreme Court this week to meet with Chief Justice Wagner. And, you know, you can just keep going like it's every month in October 20th. It's Vietnam that they're they're meeting with in uh, earlier in October. There's a, a delegation from Japan in September. It's Korea. In fact, in the in that case, uh, Chief Justice Wagner was actually in Korea for that event. So the, the chief justice seems to spend more time in other countries that he that he does here. And uh, I think they really need to focus on deciding the law in Canada rather than um, going on these going on these trips. You know, if if Wagner wants to go to Korea, but take the Camby case and decide in our favor, like have at it, go have some bibimbap. Yeah, read it <laughs> but, on the plane. But but <laughs> but do, but do our cases like come on. Anyway, I guess that's enough about that. Um, I think I think the point has been made. So maybe we'll take a break. And when we come back, Joanna, you can tell us about the news headline you were looking into this week. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. Okay, so we seem to have a theme emerging this week, which is uh, about how courts are effectively doing their job and what the various factors are that are going into that. Um, So this week, a federal court judgment has come out that is pointing fingers, throwing elbows at the Trudeau government for not appointing enough judges to the bench. So a decision by the federal court, uh, Justice Henry Brown, Um, issued uh, yesterday, Tuesday, uh, declared that the federal government must appoint more judges to the bench within a reasonable time frame um, and get what he called a critical situation under control. In his decision, he wrote that the prime minister and his uh, various justice ministers have failed Canadians and caused what he called an untenable and appalling crisis. So fighting words. So here's the background. Um, In May of 2023, uh, Justice Fagnell, who's both Chief Justice of Canada and also uh, Chief of the Canadian Judicial Council, wrote to the Prime Minister expressing his concern, uh, as well as the concern on behalf of the CJC, about the high number of vacancies, judicial vacancies in Canada, They wrote that the current situation is untenable and will result in a crisis for the justice system, which is already facing many challenges, indicating that access to justice and the health of our democratic institutions are at risk. Uh, And so since that letter was sent, um, no progress has been made. The same amount of vacancies, which is sitting at about 80, remain. Uh, And in his decision, Justice Henry Brown, he wrote that with the greatest respect, this court finds that the prime minister and minister of justice are simply treading water. They have failed to take the actions requested by the chief justice, and they have also failed all those who rely on them for the timely exercise of their powers in relation to filling these vacancies. Now, the respondent government uh, basically appears to have just ignored this uh, application, given no response, no evidence, uh, just no answer about why they failed to fill these vacancies, except maybe on Twitter, but we'll get to that in a moment. And so this is the part where it gets weird and interesting. Um, So Justice Brown identifies a constitutional convention that enjoins the government to fill judicial vacancies in a timely manner. 
And as support for this, he says that it would be absurd to suggest that the rule of law, which is enshrined in the preamble to the Constitution Act 1982, exists at the whim of the executive government. So he's saying um, there needs to be some teeth built into this rule of law preamble, and it can't be that judicial appointments are exclusively within the discretion of the executive government. Not sure about that. Uh, so um, in the result, uh, Justice Brown ends up saying that the vacancies must be reduced materially. First, he says materially re reduced within a reasonable time to a reasonable level. Uh, but then he declares as a sort of remedy, although, of course, it falls short of a direct order because the court would have no jurisdiction to make an actual direct order. Uh, he gets more specific, which I find interesting. He says the court will recognize and declare the constitutional convention that judicial vacancies must be filled within a reasonable time. And the court expects that the number of vacant vacant positions will be material, materially reduced to the mid 40s, um, being the number of federal vacancies in spring of 2016. In this manner, the court expects that the crisis will be resolved. So first of all, obviously, this is a huge problem. Um, this preponderance of judicial vacancies. And it's not just a sort of inside baseball issue. This is resulting in, we know there's been a lot of reporting, um, a lot of good reporting from Jacques Gallant of the Toronto Star, um, that this has resulted in a lot of cases, serious criminal cases being abandoned due to delay. Um, just in Toronto, there's been prominent sexual assaults, human trafficking, gun cases, uh, which have all been stayed um, because they were not tried within a reasonable time frame, which uh, now has a hard cap of 18 months for provincial court or 30 months for superior courts. Um, that's falling on a Supreme Court decision. Jordan, which was supposed to spur the system to reform itself, didn't seem to work, but that's an aside. Uh, there has been some suggestion that the Trudeau government has very specific uh, diversity DEI policies. Um, and are really looking for, you know, particular uh, racial, sexual, ethnic groups, um, and that could be contributing to the lag. We really don't know because the government hasn't said. And for his part, the current Minister of Justice, Arif Varani, clapped back yesterday on Twitter, or, or X, he said, we are making judicial appointments at the fastest pace in history. We made 100 judicial appointments last year, a number never attained by the Conservatives. In six months as minister, I appointed 64 judges. That was Harper's average annual number. Well, I mean, he can claim that, but the proof is in the pudding. And the court does update in the federal court ruling that as of February 2024, no progress on particularly federal judicial appointments have been made. He can you know, brag all he wants, but the numbers seem to be what they are. He doesn't directly contradict any of the factual findings in the federal court decision. Nonetheless, I think that this decision um, is questionable, to say the least. There's a question about whether this is justiciable, um, whether we want judges to be ruling on this, and particularly ruling in such a didactic fashion. I found the specific prescription of reducing uh, vacancies to spring 2016 levels to be highly arbitrary. <laughs> it's just like not sure where he came up with that. Yeah, it's just random and weird. Um, I have big concerns about, I think this is the first time that the judicial appointments process, which yes, in Canada, like it or not, is within the exclusive discretion of the prime minister advising cabinet. Um, so to call that as fitting within the preamble to the Constitution Act reference to the rule of law like, I just think that's a bit remote. Uh, it doesn't seem so far that it's going to uh, prompt any results, although I suppose we'll see. But certainly Arif Farani's response of saying, well, I'm better than Harper was, suggests that this is just going to be... <laughs> it's all Harper's yeah, fault. It's course. all just going to be a bunch <laughs> of posturing. Um, so while I respect your chutzpah, uh, Henry Brown... I'm not sure that you are within uh, within your wheelhouse to be doing this. Uh, Josh, what are your thoughts? I know you've got some. Oh, yeah, I've got lots of thoughts on this. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I wouldn't call it chutzpah. I'd be a little bit less kind and call it judicial activism because I, as much as I agree that, you know, the 
the cabinet needs to be appointing judges to these courts and they can't leave these, them vacant when there's, you know, when serious cases like murders and sexual assaults are being thrown out. I also don't think it's the the place of the federal court to say not only is there a convention that you need to appoint judges within a reasonable time, but I'm going to tell you the, the number of judges that I believe need to be appointed within a specific period of time. That's just, you know, sort of making up the law as, as you go along. And uh, I don't even know if they should be declaring conventions. I think uh, that even that might be going too far. It might not be justiciable at all this question. And uh, just to play devil's advocate or not, not not devil's advocate, but just to defend Varani a bit, if you look at the numbers, you know, he has been Minister of Justice for a very short time and he has picked up the pace. Um, but it, it was really Justice Lametti before him that for whatever reason, they were just incredibly slow at appointing judges. And I've been sort of watching this issue for a while. And if you read between the lines of what Lametti was saying at the time, uh, basically, they're not willing to appoint judges unless they can maintain uh, 50% or more appointments being uh, women judges. And well, you know, half of half of lawyers coming out of law school are women. When you get to sort of the older cohorts, it's actually disproportionately men. So, it, so it's it's actually a little bit harder to find women at that stage of their career than you might expect. And they're also very concerned with making sure the bench is diverse in the sense of, you know, religiously or ethnically diverse, but um, very concerned with making sure the bench is not politically diverse. They're doing the opposite there. So National Post did a great feature where they looked at of the judges who had donated to political parties in the past, where did they, where did they make their donations? And if you go back to 2016, about three quarters of judges uh, that were appointed by the Liberals had donated to the uh, had donated to the Liberals, 12.5% to the NDP, and almost a third had donated to the Conservatives. And those do numbers don't quite add up because some people have donated to more than one party. But back in 2016, they were willing to appoint Conservatives in addition to Liberals, even though it was you know, disproportionately liberal donors who are there appointing. By the time you got to 2023, almost 80% of the people who had donated had donated to the liberals and only 11% had donated to conservatives, which was um, actually the same amount as had donated to the Green Party. So you're, you're just as likely to see an appointment from someone who's a Green Party donor than a conservative once we get to 2023. So long story short, if you if your judges have to be uh, at least majority female, if ma a majority of them have to be from ethnic minorities, and if uh, most of them have to be liberal or NDP or green donors, you really are limiting the pool. So that's sort of my my theory on what was what was going on here, and uh, I don't think that's how it should be. I think we should be looking at who is qualified and appointing the most qualified person, and just sort of getting on with it in the name of justice and, and the rule of law. Um, Christine, do you have any thoughts on this particular issue? I, I think that it's, it's just so frustrating to see these cases in really serious criminal offenses, like human trafficking cases that are not proceeding because of undue delay as a result of the lack of judges. And there's no way that um, this this the the justice minister can get around that fact and it must be embarrassing for the government and it feels like this decision is 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 obviously fueled by justice brown sharing that frustration now i agree with you both that i really have concerns about this being beyond the scope of what a judge can can do i mean obviously you can't make he chose he did not make orders because he cannot make these orders uh, but just even the the finding of a constitutional convention you know I, i'm pretty skeptical and i i'm i'm curious if this is getting appealed do you know joanna is this going to be appealed so the government has said that they are reviewing their options they're reviewing the decisions they haven't said yeah and another thing that's interesting is that how far are we from an election? Probably about a year and a half from an election. And I'm I'm curious to see what happens 
just as the, you know, the polls, polls can change at any time, but right now the polls do not look great for the governing party. So if, you know, I, I think it's reasonable to expect that they don't want to leave a huge number of vacancies for uh, a, a future government if there's a change in government. But I don't know if they can go fast enough to fill these vacancies. So it may be that there will be a large group of vacancies that can be filled by a new government. And um, I can see that I, I can imagine the government might start picking up the pace just because of that political imperative rather than uh, anything that's happened in this particular case. Uh, but let's turn now to our bad legal takes. Uh, Josh, you have a really good one uh, with a, a post from someone who I think our listeners of the podcast will be familiar with. Yeah, he might be uh, setting the record for the most bad legal takes, although Nora Loretto, our journalist friend with terrible opinions, is also pretty high up there. So this one comes... Heidi Matthews, too. Heidi Matthews from Osgood has a lot. You're, you're triggering me. That <laughs> name just triggers me. Um yeah, so this one goes to Paul Champ, who, of course, is the Ottawa lawyer who is behind the class action lawsuit against the truckers using their horns too loudly during the Freedom Convoy. And this week, Ottawa police did something which I thought was actually commendable, and that was try to explain to the public where the limits are between a constitutionally protected peaceful protest and criminal activity that's not protected. And we at the CCF are very strong defenders of the right to, to gather, to assemble, and to peacefully protest. But it's always been our position that there are limits on that right. And what Ottawa police did was a tweet and a press release where they laid out some of the criminal code offenses that can lead to arrests and criminal charges. And it's notable, Ottawa police in the past couple of years have been, uh, since the Freedom Convoy, have been a lot more aggressive than most police forces in enforcing the the law where people uh, at protests take things over the line. And so they put out this tweet that lists things like causing a disturbance, which means, you know, fighting, screaming, swearing, or impeding or molesting other people, and a nuisance, which includes obstructing the public in the exercise or enjoyment of any right that is common to all subjects of, of His Majesty in Canada. Breach of the peace, which is, as we've talked about, pretty hard to define, but usually means you're uh, about to engage in a violent act. Unlawful assembly, uh, which goes beyond just riots and includes, you know, causing persons in the neighborhood of the assembly to fear on reasonable grounds that the peace will be tumultuously disturbed. And finally, uh, blockading or obstructing a highway. And this is the one that, you know, I think should be enforced more often than it is. And uh, that's called intimidation under the criminal code. So the reason I say this is commendable is because the public has no idea where the line is between you know peaceful protest and criminal activity that can land you in jail. And uh, that's because police for decades seem to have been mostly ignoring uh, illegal activity at protests, whether it's um, blockading of the, the coastal gasoline pipeline in northern BC or putting a snowplow on the railroad tracks uh, in uh, near Kingston, Ontario, which happened in February 2020 and cost, you know, a thousand people their jobs at Via Rail and hundreds of people their jobs at CN Rail because police just wouldn't remove those protesters. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I think it's good that police are finally trying to, to clarify that for people. And now Champ's bad legal take was his tweet in response to this, which said, this press release by the Ottawa police reflects an embarrassing ignorance of the constitutional freedom to protest. Public roads and streets are quintessential sites of protest and demonstrations. And it's like, uh, yeah, nobody's arguing that public roads and streets are not quintessential sites of protests and demonstrations. They're just saying there's a line between peaceful protest and non-peaceful protest. And it's incredibly hypocritical because Paul Champ was one of the main figures throughout the Freedom Convoy who was literally arguing in court that horn honking is <laughs> like the worst thing you could possibly do. It's like the greatest crime of of crimes and that people honking their horns should have to pay damages to people that were annoyed or distressed by that. And he was also one of the biggest prominent voices against the truckers who were 
using big rigs to blockade, which, you know, we, we agree and is, is, is not acceptable. Anyway, now that the protesters causing disruptions are mostly left-wing protesters like uh, the anti-Israel protesters or labor protesters, suddenly Paul Champ is very concerned that police might enforce the criminal law. So once again, Paul Champ, you get my bad legal take of the week. Christine, what's, let's hear yeah. yours. Yeah, I mean, it's just so hard to it's hard to be principled, isn't it, guys? We try. It's really, hard. We we are we're we're very principled. So you know, I I think we work hard at that. Um, but sometimes you have to advocate for people you don't agree with, and I guess Paul Champ does not well, do that. To give him just a little <laughs> bit of credit, he did uh, oppose the invocation of the Emergencies Act. He which did. He's, yeah. So he was yeah. principled on that. So we will give him credit for that. But um, on this, he just yeah. seems kind of out there and in, in the left field, let's say. <laughs> okay. So my bad legal take goes to CBC Kids, CBC News Kids, that did an article. Uh, it's for children called shutdown of convoy protests was unreasonable judge rules. Uh, and it had a number of inaccuracies in the story, which are really disappointing to me. So first they wrote the case was between the Canadian government and four different applicants, including two national organizations representing protesters affected by the Emergencies Act. That was the CCF and the CCLA. So no, the Canadian Constitution Foundation and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association did not represent protesters in this case. That is false. We were given public interest standing and we brought these applications on behalf of the public interest. Uh, there were individual applicants in the case as well, but we were not uh, associated with them and we did not represent them. So this is just factually completely inaccurate. The next thing was the article said that the ruling uh, from Judge uh, Justice Mosley of the federal court, uh, to quote the article, goes against a previous ruling from February 17th, 2023, where a judge decided that Trudeau's use of the Emergencies Act was, quote, justified. Again, no. The Public Order Emergency Commission, which is what this article is referencing with the February 17th, what they call ruling, well, that was not a ruling, and the report was by a commissioner. While he's technically a judge, he was not acting as a judge in that inquiry. This is not a judicial ruling, and referring to Commissioner Rouleau as a judge in this context is misleading. It gives the impression that there are conflicting judicial decisions. There are not. There is one judicial decision, and it is from the federal court. And uh, by the way, we won that case, if you hadn't heard. <laughs> <laughs> the third uh, is the article says that invoking the Emergencies Act, quote, gave the government the power to shut down the protests. No, the government and the police had the power to shut down the protests all along. They had this power under the criminal code, under municipal bylaws, and under existing provincial laws. The protests were, in fact, ended using those existing powers of criminal law and using a policing plan that was developed before the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So these are all material errors. They are factually inaccurate. And I think that it's bad enough to have inaccuracies in reporting to adults who have critical thinking and analytical skills. But this is an article that is directed to children who have not fully developed those capacities and have a sort of outsized trust in authority. If you tell a child something is true, for the most part, they will just accept that that is a fact. And we know that these are articles, you know, CBC News Kids is something that is used by teachers in classrooms. And I think that it's very concerning the inaccuracies and the misleading nature of this story. It's, you know, I know that they try to simplify things, which is fine. I think that that makes sense. But it is possible to write a story for children that has been simplified without making it 
factually wrong and misleading. So I, you know, I tweeted this at the CBC News Kids. I tweeted it at CBC News generally. A number of people tagged the reporter who had written this story. Uh, she subsequently blocked, locked down her account. But then a few hours later, uh, maybe it was the next day, they did correct the errors in the story. So I was happy to see that. Um, but it just goes to show, you know, I think how little even some journalists uh, understand about this case and understand about these differences, which are important and material. Anyway, uh, Joanna, what's your bad legal take? So mine is going to be pretty quick. This is out of BC. So uh, there was a woman in BC who was convicted uh, for assault and causing a, a disturbance. And the underlying fact allegation was that she deliberately coughed in the direction of a grocery store worker early on in the <laughs> COVID-19 pandemic. No, there's no allegation that like she coughed knowing that she was COVID positive or that she coughed, you know, intending to uh, spread her aerosols to the grocery worker. But for me, was this like an assault? Yeah, she was charged? convicted convicted of what? assault and causing a disturbance. So for me, the bad legal take is that a woman coughing in a grocery store made it to the criminal courts. Um, it turned out that uh, a new trial would be offered because the trial court judge didn't um, allow a character witness, which could have influenced the trial judge on whether uh, whether this woman, Kimberly Woolman, was shouting and whether there was an intentional application of force. Um, she actually had already served a third of her 18-month probation order, so the convictions are being dismissed. Nonetheless, the fact that, like, there's a, there's a concept in criminal law called de minimis, which is like there are things that are annoying and you might not like, but they don't quite carry the force of like meriting the moral opprobrium and possibility of jail time that the criminal law addresses. Um, and I was telling you guys yesterday, like, look, I get it. It was, it was very charged days. I was thinking back, like, you remember going to the grocery store in March of 2020 it felt like a zombie apocalypse. Like that was when you were like, mm -hmm. oh, man, like this is going to be bad. Like people weren't really wearing masks, but people were wearing all sorts of weird makeshift contraptions. I think I saw a guy that had like a plastic bag over his head at Whole Foods. Um, and I had a story I had, uh, there was a Longos in my building at the time I've moved since then. And I went down to pick up some stuff and it's like a smaller Longos. And there was this older woman and she was like having a coughing fit in the cereal aisle. And I just abandoned my cart and ran. I just gunned it out of there. I was just like, nope, not today, Satan. Don't need these groceries right now. So I get it. But I did not call the police and seek to have that woman charged for assault. Um, so bad legal take. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> they're they're. The, our other headline was about how human trafficking charges yeah. are thrown out because there aren't enough judges. Meanwhile, they're convicting this woman of coughing. Yeah. Like, what is this world we're living in? Yeah, it's psychotic. So anyways, bad legal take. Yeah, threatening someone with jail time for coughing in the grocery store. Wow, crazy. <laughs> All right. Well, as usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us and subscribe. And I really do mean go rate us and review us now. And just a reminder that you can support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel by following us on Twitter or by visiting our website, theccf.ca, where you can sign up for our Freedom Update newsletter from our colleague, Russ. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please click that donate button on our website if you can. Thanks for listening.